Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Maricha Sharka. Maricha Sharka has just stood down from the European Parliament, where she spent 10 years as an MEP. Uh, Maricha, when we first talked about doing this podcast, um, it was a while before the, the European elections, but since we're recording it now, just after the European elections, it would be a shame not to get your take on the outcome of the elections as well. Mm-hmm. And, and even more topically, um, gender equality, gender balance, at least, in the allocation of these EU top jobs everybody's talking about at the moment. Mm-hmm. But first things first, let's slightly walk down memory lane the past 10 years. To be slightly provocative, the European Parliament is seen as a place where um, politicians go at the end of their career to finish off a long career. It's where maybe slightly younger politicians go because they failed to get a career, get a seat in national politics. It's a place where even younger politicians go because they want to use it as a launch pad or a stepping stone, whatever the metaphor is, to a, a career in national politics. I don't think any of those three scenarios apply to you. So what inspired you all those years ago, 10 years ago now, to actually uh, stand as a candidate for the, for the European Parliament, as opposed to national politics, for example? Yeah, well, it is indeed uh, an interesting time to reflect, right, after 10 years in Parliament and with the new Parliament coming in. Uh, And I actually believe that there were more people like me at the time who run because they truly believe in public service and in the things that they want to change. So the reason why I wanted to participate, never expecting to get elected the first time I tried, was because then I was worried about the rise of the far right which was already happening. It's not a 2019 phenomenon. It was going on for a long time. You mean not just in the Netherlands, but elsewhere in Europe? Yes, but definitely also in the Netherlands, which is, of course, uh, the reason why I uh, decided to at least participate in the process. Um, And uh, I was very inspired by the new ways in which uh, Senator Obama at the time was engaging people and felt uh, it felt for people as if politics was about them again. Uh, he was using technologies in new ways. He was stepping away from the super PACs, and you know, kids were selling cupcakes in the street, and people were painting their barns with his logo. And there was a real progressive energy in the air. And of course, then we thought that uh, Bush was uh, not the most constructive president. But now we could almost get nostalgic to the Bush era if we look yeah. at the damage done by President Trump to the transatlantic relation. Uh, and, and the third reason that that motivated me at the time was to to bring more people to not only write blogs or be part of NGOs or movements or demonstrations as we see now, but mm. to really use their democratic rights and to vote because lack of young participation was, was an issue then as well. So you entered the European Parliament obviously with, with your eyes wide open. You must have known it had a reputation, fairly or unfairly, as being a bit of a talking shop. Um, so what were your first impressions once you got elected and you found yourself a brand new minted member of the European Parliament, very young, idealistic, clearly, uh, full of good intention? What, what were your first impressions when you got inside the place? Overwhelmed. Because <laughs> it's a huge institution, so many people... You know, when when a new member of parliament, and this is going to happen to hundreds of people now, uh, arrives here, you have to hire staff, find a home, you know, reorganize your life, oftentimes leave a job, uh, perhaps uh, live at much further distance from family and, uh, and, you know, the community that you've been part of. So it's the initial year is a year of massive transition. And I gave myself about a year to really get to know the players, the events, the publications, the invitations to have a better way of choosing. So I decided to actually proactively go to many things and Mm -hmm. then have a better way of weighing, you know, how much preparation I needed, what was a serious 
thing to do or less important. And so I, th I think about after a year, you have, uh, as a starting MEP, a sense of standing on your feet again. Well, I think like many parliaments, and the European Parliament is no exception, it, it's quite hierarchical, at least in, informally. So here you are, a new MEP, young, from a small, smallish country member state, in a relatively small political group, uh, a woman, you know, what else can I say? All these things uh, uh, against you. So how, do, how does a, a young Dutch liberal, uh, brand new um, MEP, make a mark uh, without wasting too much time, losing too much time? I've worked very hard and um, uh, I think I um, made a few choices that were helpful later on. So for example, I did never profile myself as a young candidate, even though I was. I entered mm. at the age of 30 when 10% of the parliament was under 40. So that gives wow. you just a picture uh, of how few people were in that sort of age bracket. And I was far from 40 at the time. I'm 40 <laughs> now. So I know <laughs> I know the distance traveled. Um, I worked hard. I, I always had a, a bit of a motto also in my office saying we do our homework. So when you go to a negotiation, when you go do uh, an intervention in a, in a debate or a questioning of a, a minister or another a guest I was in the Foreign Affairs Committee then, for mm. example, prepare, be serious, uh, and also be collegial. So when colleagues couldn't vote, I always rose my hand and said, sure, I can take over. Uh, I'm happy to do it because voting is a very important uh, element mm. of, of serving in the parliament. And if somehow a colleague couldn't make it, I felt like it was hugely uh, important that an, a liberal vote would not get wasted. And so by working hard, by preparing well, by being you know, a team player and helping others out when it was necessary in in, uh, in line of what our group needed, I hope. And I think uh, I was able to build some goodwill and then join the trade committee later, which was obviously mm. a very powerful committee that has uh, co-decision powers. Uh, and, and we saw hugely um, political and difficult debates around trade. Uh, remember right. TTIP, <laughs> that everyone <laughs> has traumas about in this town and, and other, um, and now Brexit-related uh, discussions about you know what trade is and is not about what the trade-offs are. Uh, and so I think uh, combined with, so the Trade Committee, uh, the Arab uprisings, which really was something that I worked on very, very intensively in those first years of serving in the parliament, catapulted me, I guess, in the heart of some discussions, not all, mm. uh, but some. And I, I, I'm not disappointed at uh, how I was able to stake out a position as a young female, right. uh, unfamous, you know, I was not a previous minister or ambassador right. or celebrity or journalist <laughs> or something like that. So I, I feel like I worked my way uh, up like an entrepreneur and and that's i believe a good way to look at the parliament it's it's uh, kind right. of like a marketplace yeah. uh, you have to work hard you have to be creative you have to convince people you have to work with others in order to get stuff done well to be that kind of political entrepreneur it strikes me but you can push back if you don't agree is that uh, that it's in a, in a perverse way it's quite a good thing that vis-a-vis -vis national party uh, hierarchies back at the domestic level uh, MEPs are seen as kind of not so much remote but they're not kind of central to the party political party apparatus so uh, you may feel you MEPs may feel slightly quote-unquote neglected uh, the, by the party back home but at the same time it gives you much more freedom to do to exercise this entrepreneurship that you're talking about yeah I think that's a good assessment <laughs> okay cool well we let's no longer talk about the past. Let's talk about the future. This is being recorded just a few days after the results of the uh, European Parliament elections 2019 are now pretty much clear. Mm -hmm. uh, what, do you, what are your main takeaways from the, these elections? 
Well, there's there's so many because it really is a mixed bag. Right. And I feel like people have been searching for the, the one right. one-liner that would summarize everything for months already. Mm. Uh, and that led to... Winners and losers. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, the, the polls that are, that are perpetually off uh, these days and everybody was fearing uh, the nationalists would, would do much better. So let me start there. I mean, I, I'm very worried about... Uh, the, the rise of nationalism and uh, far-right movements in, in Europe. And I don't think there's any reason to celebrate, but it is true that they didn't have the breakthrough that they hoped for uh, right. and that many feared, including myself. In some countries, maybe, but not in others, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm now looking at the, the totals yeah. uh, in yeah. the European Parliament. But of course, the picture in Poland, Hungary, Italy, the United Kingdom, France is bleak. And uh, for me, you know, this is a competition of, of ideas, but when you're a progressive, when you believe in the rule of law, fundamental rights, um, you know, international cooperation to solve the problems of our time, then you cannot be anything else but worried when you see that these voices and these parties are, are gaining ground in today's Europe. We really thought uh, that, that we would not repeat history. And I think we have to be very mindful of the lessons that we can learn. On the other hand, of course, my own political family, uh, the uh, yeah. Alliance of Liberals and Democrats has done very well. Yeah. So um, we have significantly grown. Um, I think we, we are at the heart of uh, the European Parliament and can hopefully be a bridge builder between conservatives uh, and, and labor type parties, uh, between the left and the right, to really gain um, collaborative spirit among those forces that want to build Europe, not break it down. We talk about the, the, the rise of the populists. Of course, as you know, as well as I do, there's quite a strong representation in the outgoing parliament of, of populist parties across the member states. But maybe they didn't leverage that, that power, that representation, as, as much as they might because they were quite uh, fragmented, right? They couldn't agree on common lines. Do you think the danger in the new parliament, we would, they'll, they'll learn the lessons of the past and be much more organized and cohesive? Well, we'll have to see. Uh, there was a lot of infighting going on. Many people split off of their original parties, like UKIP, I think, lost yeah, about then, a quarter yeah, of right. their representatives along the way. Uh, and I have no reason to assume anything else now because there's often a lot of emotions involved, new mm. people involved. Um, and I, I think we should challenge the notion that they did not uh, leverage their position very well. They they Because they're not as engaged in constructive solutions, negotiations, participation in, in you know the bulk of the parliamentary work oftentimes, yeah. there's a lot of time to use the parliament as a platform, literally. Yeah. You know, parliamentary speech is just to have plen- another YouTube session, clip, yeah, uh, for, yeah. for the online um, environment. They've been extremely successful at uh, rolling in EU public funds, mm. taxpayer money, to fund campaigns. Mm. And uh, in a sort of cynical way, their cooperation has therefore been productive, even if there was major disagreements. Think, for example, about the Five Star Movement in Italy and the UK Independence Party that held on to each other mm. in order to meet certain criteria of, of the size of political groups. And I know this may sound nitty gritty, but it really matters, uh, those kinds of details, because when parties work together, they can tap into certain resources that they cannot when they remain smaller. And so I think the the cynical and almost counterintuitive drive to to work together on the European level by parties that want to destroy the European yeah. Union from within these days um, and to tap into European public funds is, you know, is a space to watch, even if it's not reflected in 
their imprint on parliamentary decisions. Right. Well, we all know by now that the, the main groupings, the two largest groupings, the centre-right European People's Party, centre-left Social Democrat Party, lost both lost seats. And on, again, they, they lost seats last time. I think there's been a downward um, uh, path Trend, there yeah. for a while now. It's not a new thing. Uh, how? But this time, as you know, is they the two groups do not command an absolute majority in the new parliament. How significant is that in terms of just the number crunching, that the fact that these two largest groups no longer together uh, command that majority. Well, look at the voting record and see how often they actually form the majority. I think it's being overemphasized, right. this this majority together. Yeah. They were often at odds with each other. In fact, I would argue that the, that the division in voting patterns was often through the middle. So either you had a more conservative-leaning result or a more progressive-leaning result. And it's not without reason that we were called the kingmakers because it was often the question what our group would do. Yeah. Uh, if we would go one direction, it would be the majority on that side. If it go another direction, it would be the majority on that side. And we used this negotiating position in an optimal way to have as strong as possible a liberal mark on the end result. So I think there's too much reading into the question of do they make up a majority? But what they did do very successfully, and I think very cynically, is divide jobs, yeah, the top uh, jobs, determine, yeah, yeah. yeah, but also internal bureaucratic right. jobs. You know, place yeah, their yeah. people in the administration. In the administration, uh, determine the agenda. There is really a very strong old boys network, uh, and this is not so much a gender-related comment, although it is true that there is a heavy dominance in the top positions in the bureau bureaucracy, but also in the political leadership in the EU of men. Hmm. But I think it reflects a culture that people are fed up with, and I can only hope that with uh, more diversity in the parliament and with people who have run on tickets to change Europe, yeah. they will also change that because the intransparency uh, and the sort of sort of you know opaque mm. uh, procedures, for example, and the also zigzagging of positions is, is not helping the credibility of Europe and the politicians representing the various parties. Well, you mentioned this kingmaker role of the Liberal Group had in the outgoing parliament. Now they've more or less doubled in size, right, almost. Yes. Um, so how do you think the Liberal Group in the, in the new parliament, you know, with the twice the number of seats practically, will, uh, will bec become even more of a kingmaker? It will all depend on their ability to work together right. in the common interest. And with so many newcomers, new parties, like on Marsh, uh, relatively new parties yeah. like Ciudadanos, yeah. uh, some big blocks like the Lib Dems, uh, the um, uh, French uh, grouping, mm. um, the Spanish, a uh, fairly large group of people from the Czech Republic. Mm. The question is going to be, you know, can they really come together in a much more profound way than they did in the past five years? Yeah. Our group in the past five years was fragmented, yeah. was often divided, and therefore not able to leverage yeah. that very king-making yeah. weight yeah. that I think is, is optimal, but it requires success to be shared. Mm. It requires predictable and fair procedures to come to a decision within the group in terms of what the group line is. Mm. And if there's no loyalty, if there's no buy-in, what you might see is fragmentation, even if people sit under the big umbrella of the liberal group, mm. if their voting behavior is divided and if majorities are slim, this is still uh, profound and problematic for the common negotiating position of the liberal group. Okay, well, let's, let's now, this third part of the, of the conversation, Maricha, talk about then the, these new top jobs. All these top jobs are, come, are up for grabs now mm -hmm. in the weeks and months ahead. The European Commission, the European Council, the High Representative for Foreign Security Policy, President of the European Parliament, even the Central Bank. Yes. First of all, what is your view uh, on 
on the spitzen kandidaten process is it is it a is it a success is it a failure is it is it 50 50 because uh, obviously it has it as we're ta- as we're recording this there's a big debate on whether the spitzen kandidaten process should should uh, determine and influence to 100 percent the allocation at least of the presidency of the european commission well the whole idea that there would be transparency ahead of the elections on yeah. who are the candidates for the top jobs is a very logical one yeah to suggest that that is not legitimate i think is is in a, an idiotic idea but the way in which the Spitzenkandidat procedure has taken shape is also suboptimal and apparently uh, one of the reasons is that you know some people who already have top jobs <laughs> because yeah. it's often people jumping from one top job to the other <laughs> yeah. um, would not be willing to raise their hands as a candidate if there would be the possibility of failure yeah. now I think that is also a bit of a cop-out because uh, running in a European or in a for a European top job but basically running in any election uh, if you want it to be a democratic process, yes, there is the chance that you might not get it. Yeah. But there is nothing wrong with running uh, for something you believe in. And I yeah. think we need to destigmatize that. But apparently one of the reasons uh, for you know uh, doubts about the Spitzenkandidaten process is also that. And it is clear that in many cases there has not been much competition. <clears throat> there has not been <clears throat> much transparency within political groups in terms of how Mm. their top candidate was going to be selected mm. it's often you know decided by the top uh, of the political party itself and, and not a transparent process and not a very democratic process either so there's many flaws but the principle of having a predictable open mm. democratic process for the top jobs of the european union is the least we can ask for do you think and if i'll see if i can put you on the spot you've left parliament maybe you can be even more outspoken than you have been in the past do you think i tried Baper- to be throughout <laughs> let's <laughs> see what I'm, happens now I'm, that i have my full freedom of expression <laughs> back yeah the the epp spits and candidate manfred weber epp want largest number of seats therefore he should be the next president of the european commission do you agree well it's not my candidate obviously i think uh, margrethe vestager is an excellent candidate and I would hope that the best people go to the most important positions. And if it requires new candidates to join this race because of different reasons, um, then I'm open to it because I think the Spitzenkandidaten process has not been em- embraced yeah. wholeheartedly anyway. Uh, Macron uh, was against it. Our group has fielded a team mm. instead of a person uh, linking it to the failing of transnational lists, which was, of course, uh, an, an idea that um, the EPP voted against, but that would have led to much more European spirit in these elections, mm. which I think is necessary indeed. So um, let's see. Do you think, though, there's a, there's a, there's a, a real danger or likelihood, whatever word you want to use, that Manfred Weber will not get the absolute majority required in the European Parliament vote to endorse his his, uh, his presidency, his candidate, candidate for the presidency of the European Commission? It's definitely an option. It's an option because also the EPP has used its role as being the largest political group in ways that has ticked people off. They've often not been very collegial. Uh, They've pretended that they had an absolute majority, which was, of course, never the case. But I've sat through hundreds of hours of of frustrating negotiations with a group that simply by being the largest was very stubborn. And I believe that, especially on the progressive side, there's excitement about trying to change things. And I believe it is necessary that there is a rethink of how things are done and it shouldn't automatically uh, all land on the EPP. Uh, it should land on the best person and, and frankly speaking, uh, Manfred Weber, although he has a solid track record in the European Parliament, 
you know, he doesn't have, uh, he's not very well known. Yeah. He doesn't have executive experience. These are all factors to consider. Okay, we're going to move to, I promise, move to gender balance in a moment. One last question on the process. Um, if Mr. Weber does not get through, what happens next? Do the socialists put forward their candidate? Or is there a new progressive alliance? Do, do dark horses come out from the wings who weren't <laughs> actually some, campaigning? Some light horses. Like, exciting <laughs> horses. Unicorns. But yeah. we, people are kind of predicting okay, the, de the, the yeah. demise of uh, Mr. Weber, maybe slightly prematurely, but they are predicting it. So, But the question people don't have an answer to is what happens after that? Yeah, but actually it's for the EPP to answer. Right. They chose this candidate. If they don't uh, stand by him anymore... It, Frankly, it's not my problem. Yeah. Okay. Gender balance, gender balance, gender balance. So what is your view? The, these top jobs that we just mentioned, plus, of course, the, the, the college, the other 27 members of the European Commission, if the UK has not quite left yet. Yeah. Um, how, obviously, I can guess what you're going to say about gender balance obviously being a, a good idea, duh, but how, do, how does one get there? It's, it's not only just a good idea. There are a number of phenomenal women yeah. that can go into these jobs. And I, I don't want this to be uh, a, a sort of suggest, suggestion of some kind of positive discrimination. No. I mean, it's 2019. Yeah. There are excellent women. Let's go. And for that, the Old Boys Network needs to make space. And it's very difficult for them. Uh, and so one way to think about it is for, for member states to nominate two people. Right. A man and a woman and then you know there's a bit more choice there can be a bit of moving you know to see which person is most qualified for which job but with the likely outcome of having more gender balance which uh, of course is is about time yeah and but as you know we've had what we've had one woman a high representative um, for Two. the past ten, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah for the past 10 yeah, years yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's about the sum total of women in these top jobs i think in the in the 40 odd history of the european parliament i think there've been yeah. 2 maybe 3 max women presidents, even for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the President of the Council is quite a new job. Uh, the President of the Commission obviously has been around for much longer. So I, I'm just curious to know, because it's all very well for even even male feminists to say we need more women in these top jobs, but how do we, uh, how do we make sure that the next um, few weeks or months are, are not wasted in trying to secure those objectives? Yeah, it's, it's a question of individual leadership. Every person that really has a decision in this process yeah. should, should think about also the optics of what they're aiming for. I think we, we've known for years who phenomenal women are, yeah. from uh, Margrethe Vestager to Christine Lagarde, who's yeah. you know, an excellent uh, president of the IMF, yeah. has a phenomenal track record. I mean... I wish this was not about balance anymore, about yeah. gender as a topic. I wish it could simply be about the best people in the best Ability, places. And, yeah. and the leadership is not good qualitatively if it's only one gender and if it continues to be so many men. So I don't think this is difficult. No. Well, I think there may be some maybe early signs that this old men's club you're talking about is slightly realizing it has to open its doors to the, to the other half of the population. Marita Schalk, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you.